0: I'm a parent. I'm a sixth grade science teacher. I'm a special education supervisor. I'm a parent of four sons. I am a parent of a teenager. And I'm also the parent of three boys. And one has a learning disability. I just started my third year of teaching first grade. I woke up the first day of school for eighth grade thinking, I've got one year before high school. And um... My son needs to really learn how to be self-motivated. I would just like to find out more about what I could do to motivate everyone in the classroom. I think parents are at a real loss, though, of how to motivate their children. Oh, I've really tried everything. No matter what kinds of incentives we try to use. Giving them candy or giving them some kind of award. They would get their allowance if they did the right things. All kinds of charts that they needed to fill out. Did I do this? Did I do that? Sometimes it works, sometimes not. It's really frustrating. I need to figure out how to get them engaged. I think a breakthrough is exactly what we need at this time. One of the greatest challenges faced by parents, coaches, and educators is motivation. Often, their very best focused efforts fail to inspire and drive children to reach their potential, at home, in the classroom or in the playing field. And whenever I speak to parents or educators about this challenging issue, I get the same questions and concerns. Why does Tommy seem to be motivated one day and then totally uninspired and disinterested the next day? No matter how much I threaten or punish Michelle, she just doesn't apply herself in school or at home. Why does Joaquin seem so motivated in his math class, but so uninvolved in his language arts class? And then the classic, if he'd only try harder, he'd do better. (laughs) Many students struggle with motivation for many reasons. Learning disabilities, chronic school disappointment, frustration, embarrassment, fear of failure, inadequate social or academic skills, or simply a mismatched teaching approach. Candidly, the traditional motivational approaches we use at home and in the classroom simply don't work. It's time to take a different look at student motivation and try innovative approaches that inspire our kids to find the motivation breakthrough. Thank you. I make my family do that whenever I come home. They. Uh... <laughs> I began my work on motivation several years ago. And when I began the research, I learned three things that shocked me. Number one is, most teachers don't understand motivation. Most adults, parents and teachers, do not understand student motivation. That's the first thing I learned. The second thing I learned is that I didn't understand student motivation. I've been in the field for 25 years. And I thought I was an effective motivator. And once I began researching motivation, I realized that I didn't understand it. And the third thing I learned was that most of the things that we think are true about motivation simply are not true. That there are a tremendous number of myths and misconceptions about student motivation out there. And I think that's probably an appropriate way to begin the lecture today, is talking about myths and misconceptions, things that people think are true about student motivation that simply are not true. And probably the most common one, the one I hear most often, is this. Oh, Danny, nothing motivates that kid. This kid is totally unmotivated. Folks, you got to promise me you'll never say that again. Because if you say to someone who truly understands human motivation, this kid is totally unmotivated, you've demonstrated a fairly sad lack of information about human motivation. Because one of the most important things to understand about motivation is simply this. All human behavior is motivated. All except blood running through your veins and your heart beating, every human behavior is motivated. If someone stands up and walks out of my lecture right now, I can't say she's not motivated. She was motivated to walk out. That was her motivation. That kid who sits in your fifth grade class with his head on the desk, don't tell me he's not motivated. He's motivated to sit there with his head on the desk. And I learned this, my travels on the road, I've been introduced to some amazing people, and listen to this story in terms of all human behavior is motivated. I was speaking in the Midwest a couple of years ago about motivation, and this young man came up to me and he said, I got a story for you and you're welcome to use it. Listen to this. It was a difficult story for him to get through. He was about 24, 25 years old. And he said, Rick, he said, my father left my life when I was in the third grade. I got up one morning, I went downstairs. He had packed up his stuff and gone. He said, that was 17 or 18 years ago. He said, I don't know where he is. I don't know if he's alive or dead. He said, and God help me, I don't care. He was a horrible, horrible person. And I didn't realize it at the time, but now in retrospect, I realize the day he left my life was probably the best day of my life. He was a terrible person who made my life miserable, my three brothers' lives miserable, and my mom's life miserable. He said, and I was the youngest and the smallest of four boys. And because I was the youngest and the smallest, my father used to beat me. And he said he didn't need a reason to beat me. We'd be sitting at the dinner table, he would reach across the table and slap me in the face. He didn't need a reason to beat me, but generally when he beat me, he'd been drinking, and he beat me in the kitchen or in the living room, and I could get away. I, just, I could run outside and wait till he fell asleep. He said, but when I did something wrong or made a mistake, I used to get what my brothers and I called a bathroom beating. This was a bathroom beating. My father would take me, drag me into the bathroom, close the door behind us, and beat me till he got tired of beating me. He said, and in a bathroom beating, you couldn't get away. You ran in the closet. He was there. You ran behind the toilet. He was there. You jumped in the shower. He was there. He said, that was a bathroom beating. That's what you got when you made a mistake or did something wrong. He said, and in the first grade, I couldn't read. He said, I just couldn't break the code. And I was so embarrassed. I couldn't read. He said, and the way they used to teach reading in my school district in those days was that Mrs. Donovan, Every other Thursday, on alternate Thursdays, just after recess, Mrs. Donovan, the reading specialist from the district, would come to school and take the first graders who couldn't read and make them come to the front of the class and read out loud in front of the other kids. He said, and that used to embarrass me so much, listen to this, folks, he said, that used to embarrass me so much that every other Thursday during recess, just before Mrs. Donovan came, I'd go into the boys' room and I'd take my reading glasses and I'd twist them till they broke or i tapped the lens against the sink until the lens cracked. So when Mrs. Donovan came in, I'd hold the glasses and I'd say, Mrs. Donovan, I can't read today, my glasses are broken. He said, and I did that every other Thursday for five months of first grade with the full knowledge that when I got home and showed my parents the broken glasses, I was gonna get a bathroom beating for it. You know the saddest part of that story? I'll bet if you look at that kid's records, Mrs. Donovan wrote down someplace, this kid is not motivated. I mean, she must have known he was doing it on purpose. You don't break your glasses ten times in five months without doing it on purpose. Not motivated? I would submit to you that kid was probably the most motivated child she'll ever have in her career. He was so motivated to avoid being embarrassed. He was willing to take a beating from a grown man twice a month. That's motivation, Jack. That is big-time motivation. All human behavior is motivated. So it's appropriate to say this kid's not motivated to do what I want him to do. But don't say he's not motivated because all human behavior is motivated. The second myth that we hear is one day he's motivated, the next day he's not. No, motivation is what we call a relative constant. That is to say, if the child is motivated to learn math, he's motivated every day. If he's not motivated, he's not motivated every day. It's as simple as that. Now, his behavior may change from day to day. His performance and his progress may change from day to day for reasons we're going to talk about, but the motivation is a constant. And let me give you an analogy. The only analogy I can come up with that kind of works for this. It's kind of like love. You're a wife. You love your husband very much. Your love for him is right up here. You love him very much. Now, some days are better than others. (laughs) And some days there's trouble in paradise. Okay? But the love is a constant. So suppose you love your husband this much, but you had a difficult morning with him this morning and you're you're angry at him right now and you're feeling right about here. But God forbid if you got a call that he was injured at work or something he was in the hospital, you'd be the first one at the hospital holding his hand because the love is a constant even though day to day there may be changes, the love is a constant and that's the way it is for motivation. And that's why it's so frustrating for many of our kids. They want to learn math and some days they can and some days they can't. Because of one of the most misunderstood aspects of learning problems, and that is the concept of performance inconsistency. Performance inconsistency. It is part of the profile of many of our kids. They have good days and bad days that are absolutely beyond their control. Here's an analogy to help you understand it. It's almost like within the mind of this child, there are three clocks. And the three clocks are set at different times and moving at different speeds. So the kid is totally out of sync with his environment. The clocks are moving at different speeds and telling different times, so he's totally out of sync with his environment. However, the law of averages will tell you that if you take three clocks, set them at different times, and move them at different speeds, there will eventually come a time where bingo, 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 they're all telling the same time, and then they get out of sync again. That's what happens with our kids. The clocks are out of sync and they're totally discombobulated, mixed up in their environment and confused, and then suddenly, bingo, 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 the three clocks are telling the same time, and for a day or a week or a month, if you're lucky, there's this incredible forward movement, and then the clocks get out of sync again. Raise your hand if you've had that experience with special needs kids. Yes, we all have. It's called performance inconsistency. It is part of the profile. And here's the problem. Here's the problem. I believe that our challenge as educators and parents is not what we do with the kids on the bad days. We're trained to deal with kids in the bad days. The real test, our real asset test of how much we understand these kids is what we do with the kids in the good days. Because you know what we do when a kid's having a good day? We punish him for it. We punish him for it. He comes in and he's having a good day and how do we respond? Well, I guess you can do it when you put your mind to it, can't you? We actually punish him for having a good day. When I'm dealing with a kid who goes to a school system that doesn't understand him, and he says, you know, sometimes, Mr. Lavoie, um, I I get up in the morning, I know I'm going to have a good day. You know what I say? Don't go to school. (laughs) They'll beat you over the head with that day for the rest of your academic career. You know, you did it April 12, 2003. I don't know why you can't do it today. Basically, see, the real test is what we do with the kids on the good days we should take those days and celebrate them and instead we use them to actually punish the child we use the good days as evidence that he was faking it the rest of the time and it is part of their profile it's not that the motivation comes and goes the pro- progress and performance comes and goes because of performance and consistency but we've got to stop blaming the victim and realize that if you think it's frustrating as a teacher that Billy knows the times tables on Monday but doesn't know him on Tuesday try to imagine how frustrating that is for the child So, um, again, that myth, um, the motivation comes and goes, it simply doesn't. One day he's motivated, the next day he's not. The next myth that I hear about motivation all the time is this one, he's so lazy he won't even try. I've always been the boss at the schools where I've worked, I've been the director. I think I'm a good boss, I think I get along with my employees, but I am the boss and I'm entitled to some hot buttons. You all know your boss, don't say that in front of her, she gets angry. Don't say that in front of him, he gets mad. Everyone who's ever worked for me knows very clearly, you never call a kid lazy around me, ever. Because for my money, about nine times out of ten, when a kid appears to be lazy, he actually suffers from something called learned helplessness. Learned helplessness. Now the problem with learned helplessness is that learned helpless behavior looks just like lazy behavior. The lazy behavior and the learned helpless kid act exactly the same. And one of the things we're not really good at as educational professionals is what's called differential diagnosis. Doctors are very good at this. Let me give you an example. Your first name, sir? Sterling. Sterling. Let's suppose that Sterling has a terrible headache and I have a terrible headache. We have the identical symptoms. We go to our doctor. The doctor examines Sterling and examines me. We have the same symptoms. He determines that Sterling's headaches are caused by allergies. My headache is caused by internal intracranial pressure on my brain. Same symptoms, but very, very different diagnosis, and as a result, very different treatment. He's going to get anionihistamine. Anionihistamine is not going to help me. I'm going to get brain surgery. Sterling doesn't need brain surgery. Basically, doctors are very good at looking at two patients with the same symptoms and saying the symptoms are the same, but the diagnosis and the treatment is very different. We're not real good at that as teachers. We look at five kids with their heads in the desk, and we say they're all lazy. Well, sure, there are lazy kids. Of course there are. But for my money, I would say that two-thirds of those kids actually suffer from learned helplessness. We all have areas of learned helplessness in our lives. One of my areas of learned helplessness and I'm not proud of this, is automotive repair. Now, no matter how little you know about how to fix a car, I know less. I am clueless about fixing a car. Now, I've got a car with me. It's parked outside. Suppose at the end of the chute here, you folks go out, you're standing in the lobby saying goodbye to each other, and you watch me get behind the wheel of the car and turn the key, and the car won't start. I'll turn again. It doesn't start. I'll turn a third time. It doesn't start. If it doesn't start in the third time, I'll come in and call a garage for someone to come and start the car. Now you might be watching that and say Rick is a pretty lazy guy. His car didn't start, he didn't even open up the hood. He just went and called for help. He's a very lazy guy. Now I've got a lot of faults, probably more than most people, but laziness is not one of them. My schedule's busier than 95% of the people I know. I'm not lazy, I'm learned helpless. My thing is, why open up the hood? Why get the suit dirty? Unless there's somebody lying dead over the engine block, I'm not going to notice. And if there were wires pulled out, I wouldn't know where to put them back in. It's not that I'm lazy, it's that I'm learned helpless in that area. Now, my nephew is an automotive mechanic. If he couldn't start the car and called immediately for help, you could say he was lazy. Same behavior, very different reason. What we've got to do is we've got to come to understand learned helplessness. And you've got kids in your class who, and at home who appear to be lazy, but they're actually learned helpless. And the best thing you can do for those kids is to remind them to do what i call give the chain a tug the best example i could give you the best example in the world of learned helplessness is the elephant in the zoo go to your local zoo sometime and see the elephant they bring this two-ton animal one of the most powerful animals on earth they train elephants in africa and india to knock down buildings that's how powerful they are and they bring him from his cage out to his pen and they attach this thin chain around his ankle, the kind of chain we use on car tires in the winter. And they attach the other end of the chain to a stake that's driven about six inches into the ground. And the elephant walks around that stake in a circle that never gets any bigger day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. He walks around that chain in a circle. One tug in that chain, he'd be done. He'd be free. But you see, that's how they train elephants. When he was a little baby elephant, they put that chain on his ankle and attached that chain to that stake, and he hated it. And he pulled and he pulled and he pulled, but he couldn't get away. Now, 20 years later, as soon as they put that chain on his ankle, he assumes he's imprisoned. And he just walks around in a circle and never gives the chain a tug. And what we need to do with learned helpless kids is encourage them to give the chain a tug. I'm not going to ask anyone to the prom because in the 8th grade, I asked a girl to would dance, and she made fun of me. Yeah, but look at you now, Bill. You're 6'2", you're a big handsome kid, you've grown, you matured, ask them under the prom, give the chain a tug. I'm not going to put anything in the science fair, because when I was in the 6th grade, I put something in the science fair, and the other kids made fun of it. Yeah, but that was four years ago, Michael. That was four years ago, give the chain a tug. So many times when we label a kid lazy, it's actually learned helplessness. We need to understand the difference. The symptoms look the same, but the reasons for the behavior and the treatment has got to be very, very different so laziness one of the great misconceptions because we don't understand and we have these misconceptions then we create strategies to motivate kids that are based on these misconceptions and let's talk about the most common strategies we use to motivate kids probably the top one is rewards giving kids rewards for doing something good when you give a kid a reward to do better in school you're doing it based on two assumptions one is that every behavior is measurable, and secondly, that the only reason the kid is not doing it is because he chooses not to. And if you motivate him, he's actually able to do it. He's just not motivated enough. So I'll give him stuff, and that will make him more motivated. Giving things to kids does not motivate them; it only motivates them short term. It only mo- let me give you an example. In uh, your first name, please, ma'am. Asia. Asia? Um, in. 2004, the Boston Red Sox won the World Series. Thank you very much. I'm going to say that again just because I like saying it. In 2004, the Boston Red Sox won the World Series in a four-game playoff against the St. Louis Cardinals. In the final game, Asia, in the final game for $20, in the final game, it was a ground ball, the last out, ground ball to Keith Falk, the, the Red Sox pitcher, who fielded the ground ball and threw it to the first baseman for the final out, and we won the World Series for the first time in 86 years. For $20, what was the name of that first baseman? I have no clue. Okay, she has no clue. Okay, for $40, <laughs> what was the name of that first baseman? Can I call my first <laughs> no, right. baseman? There are no lifelines. For $60, you see what's happening here? I could get all the way up to $500. It's not going to help. She simply doesn't know. And asking her, saying, I'm going to give her things, to have her give me information she doesn't have, is really rather foolish. And yet that's what we do. And I'll tell you why we do it. Let me speak honestly as colleagues. I'll tell you why we do it. Because it's easier. It's easier. You've, Asia is a student in your class. And she doesn't, um, she's not doing her math homework. There's a lot of reasons why kids don't do math homework. They have executive processing problems. They don't understand the directions. They don't understand the math facts. They're having trouble at home. They don't have good study strategies. There's a lot of really complicated reasons why kids aren't doing their math homework, and those are pretty difficult reasons to figure out. So what we do is take the easy way out and say, if you do your math homework, I'll give you something. It's kind of letting ourselves off the hook. Rewards simply don't work. A number of years ago, one of the major fast food chains started an experiment in a major Midwest city. And what they said was, and this was in the 70s, they started this program, when you could go to the local restaurant, if you were a kid living in that city, they they, they were trying to get kids, particularly kids from lower socioeconomic groups, they were trying to get kids to read during the summer. So they put together this program that you could go to the local restaurant and you could go to the manager's office and pick out a book. You could take the book home and they gave you a book and a report form. You took, took the book home, read the book, filled out the report form, you could keep the book. That was a good deal. You brought the report form back to the manager, and if the report form had been done completely and correctly, you would get a gift certificate to the restaurant, but it was, a, it was like a $20 gift certificate, which in those days, you could feed a family of five a couple of, couple of times for 20 bucks. So all over town, you had parents whipping their kids, you know, uh, you know, read a book. We'll go have hamburgers. Read a book. We'll go have hamburgers. Well, at the end of the summer, they found they ended up up with a bunch of fat kids who didn't like to read. Because, basically, (laughs) the motivation was not to become better readers. The motivation was to go have a hamburger. The motivation wasn't to read the books to become lifelong readers. So what we need to do, we need to understand that rewards don't do it. And let me talk to you as moms and dads. Sometimes we're all so busy. We get into, we feel guilty. We don't spend the time with our kids that we should. So we're constantly giving them rewards instead of the time and many times those rewards are financial. Now, I was dealing with a family, they had five young kids, and they had a great, the family was a family of means, and they were constantly giving the kids money in, I'm sorry I missed your your ballet recital, but here's $20. I'm sorry I missed your little league game, but here's $20. And I used to warn the parents, there's some danger here. The kids are going to begin to equate love with money, that it means the same thing, and the parents didn't believe me. And the mother called me on Mother's Day afternoon, heartbroken. She got a card from her eight-year-old son, a handmade card, Happy Mother's Day, and opened it up, and there was a $10 bill inside. Yeah, That's what rewards can do. There's a wonderful book by a gentleman named Herb Lovett who runs programs for group homes for people with special needs, particularly adults. Listen to this. And he was in this group home one day, and there was a young adult who had just joined this group home, a person of very limited intellect, um, had just joined the group home. He was about 19 or 20. And they overheard this conversation. He overheard this conversation between the new person entering the group home and an older gentleman who had been in the group home for 20 years. And the older gentleman said to his new friend, don't let the staff know that you like ice cream. Because if they know you like ice cream, they'll make you work for it it becomes a reward. If they don't think you like it, we get ice cream every night. Should we make kids work for recess? You have to earn recess. You have to earn some computer time. No, rewards simply don't work. So we get into doing these rewards where if you do this kid, we will give you something for it. It simply is not an effective way to motivate kids. It doesn't last long term. It doesn't work long term. And basically, you're only motivating kids who would probably be motivated anyway. It's our number one technique that we use to motivate kids, and it simply doesn't work. The other strategy we use is punishment. If the kid doesn't do what we want him to do, then we decide to punish the child. There are several reasons why punishment doesn't work. Number one, it does not eliminate behavior, it only represses it. If I punish Tom for bullying Jim outside my office, I see Tom bullying Jim outside my office, and I punish Tom for that, guess what's happened? Tom will no longer pick on Jim outside my office. He'll pick on Jim other places, and he'll pick on other kids outside my office, but he won't pick on Jim outside my office. By punishing the kid, you don't eliminate behavior. You only move it someplace else. Another reason punishment doesn't work is that, frankly, it models aggression. If you're constantly punishing kids, you're modeling a very aggressive lifestyle. I remember being in a shopping mall one day and seeing this young father with these two little boys, seven and five, and the 7-year-old is pushing the 5-year-old and hip-checking the 5-year-old and really giving the 5-year-old a hard time. Finally, the father got tired of it, and he turned to the 7-year-old, and he went crack and slapped him across the face, and he said, that'll teach you to hit your little brother. <laughs> uh-huh, that's exactly what it'll do. That will teach him to hit his little brother. I get frustrated with you, I hit you. You get frustrated with your brother, you hit your brother. So punishment models aggression. I've got more power than you have, and I can punish you whenever I want. Another reason it doesn't work is, frankly, it doesn't generalize. It doesn't generalize. You're a mom. You've got a four-year-old daughter. She's playing in the driveway. She runs out into the street. You go grab her by the arm, you swat her in the bottom, you send her up to her room. I don't want to see you until supper time. That's very bad to run out in the street. You go to your bed until supper time. Mom, I can almost assure you, as a result of that intervention, your daughter will never run out in the street again from your driveway but when the family goes to visit grandma and she's in grandma's driveway, she's very likely to run out in the street because because negative feedback and punishment does not generalize to other settings. Positive feedback does, by the way. You're in the kitchen doing your chores. The four-year-old girl is in the driveway playing. You stick your head out once in a while. Honey, you're being such a good girl. Thanks for staying in the driveway. You're making my life much easier. Maybe we can have an extra story before you go to bed tonight. With that kind of intervention, guess what? She's gonna stay in the driveway at your house and at grandma's house. So punishment does not generalize to other settings. And the last thing about punishment is that punishment is only effective as long as the threat of punishment exists. Suppose I'm late for a meeting, and I'm driving down the highway 15 miles over the speed limit because I'm late for a meeting, and I come over the crest of a hill, and I see a state policeman and his cruiser parked by the side of the road. What do I do? I slow down. And the reason I slow down is it suddenly dawned on me that I have a moral imperative to no, I slow down, (laughs) I slow down because I don't want to get a ticket. But when I can't see him in the rearview mirror anymore, I'm right back on the pedal. Because punishment is only effective as long as the threat of punishment exists. So a teacher who says to me, my kids always behave for me because they know if they don't, I'm going to punish them. Yes, they will behave for you, but don't you dare leave the classroom and don't you dare turn your back. And you've got to give your substitute teacher combat pay because when you're not there, there is no reason for them to behave. So we try rewards, we try punishment, that doesn't work. Then we try what is the basis of the entire movement in education today, which frankly frightens me, and that is our use of competition. Our use of competition to motivate kids. We're going to talk much more extensively about this later, but our use of competition to motivate kids. What we need to do is take a different and unique look at how to motivate kids. But in order to do this, we've got to take a step back about 30 or 40 years to the work of Abraham Maslow. We all had to remember. Remember that uh, pyramid we had to memorize about his, about his needs. What he said was that people's needs needed to be met before the person could be motivated to do what you want them to do. And what I'm going to do is, based on that research, based on Maslow's research, which is probably the only psychological research that I know that's never really been discredited. It was so on target. I mean, pretty much all the other fathers of psychology have been discredited in the last 30 or 40 years in some way or another, but not Maslow because he was on target. And what he told us is that in order for a person to be motivated or to behave in a certain way, their needs need to be met. These needs must be met. And there are two kinds of needs that we all have primary needs and what are called secondary needs. And primary needs have a tremendous impact on the child's ability to be motivated. If the primary needs are not met, the child will not be motivated. So before we start looking at all the complicated psychological reasons why kids aren't motivated to do what we want them to do, let's take a look at some of the physical needs. Are the kids' basic physical needs being met? And those physical needs, the primary needs, consist of things like hunger. If the child is hungry, it's very difficult for him to remain motivated. It's very difficult for any of us to be motivated when we're hungry. When I'm doing a workshop with adults, teachers and parents, a morning workshop, around 10.30, 11 o'clock, I can begin to pick out the people who didn't have breakfast. They're running out of fuel. They're running out of fuel and they're beginning to yawn, they're beginning to stretch, they're beginning to fade out a little bit because basically their body isn't fueled. I got a bulletin for some of you teachers. Do you know, Well, I'll say this quietly, it's kind of a secret, but do you know that there are some kids in your class whose moms and dads don't get up in the morning and make them bacon and eggs before they come to school? (laughs) Of course we do. There are some kids in your class who frankly aren't motivated because they're hungry. I've got a very unique solution to that. Give them something to eat. It'll be the best three bucks you spend every Sunday to go out and buy a box of, of, of crackers or something. And when the kid begins to fade at 10, 30 or 11 o'clock as he's hungry, give him a stack of crackers and say, eat these and get back to work. Either that, or you can fight with the kid from 11 till 12 every day. It's your call. I think it's a pretty easy call to make. So if the kid's hungry, he's not going to be motivated. If the kid is thirsty, he's not going to be motivated. This is something that makes me a little bit wild. Why do we make such a big deal out of this? I mean, look around the room. Most of you have something to drink in front of you. You're coming to a lecture. You brought something to drink. I've been working on this up here for 10 minutes. The reality is you're coming to a lecture. You want something to drink. And yet aren't we the same people in the class who say a kid has to go take a sip from the water bubbler? No! You're sitting there sucking on your 864-ounce Slurpee in the front of the class telling this kid that he can't go take a sip of water out of the... The bottom line is if he's thirsty, he's not going to be motivated anyway. And here's another bulletin for you. How many of you have kids who are on, on psychotropic drugs like Ritalin, Silur, that kind of thing? Okay, what are one of, What's one of the side effects of those medications? Dry mouth. They dry out the, the mucus linings in the kid's mouth. So you know that little pain in the neck 10-year-old who's always asking you to get to get, get out to get a drink of water during your class? You know why he's doing that, that little skeezic? You know why? Because he's thirsty. He's really thirsty. He's not trying to get out of work. He's really thirsty. Let him go get a drink of water. I ran a residential school for troubled special needs high school kids for 15 years. We used to allow kids to take water bottles to class with them. And with the deal, if you sprayed anybody with it or got in trouble you'd lose the water bottle. Twice, twice in five years a kid lost his water bottle. Again, he's thirsty. Let him go get a drink of water. Let him get a drink of water. Air and rest. Sometimes a kid's not motivated just because he needs air and rest. Right now Each of you can reach out and touch four or five people you don't know. How comfortable do you feel in this setting? Not very. And if we took a break, boom, you'd be out the door in a minute. Because this is a very close setting for us as human beings. What if I offered you a job and said, here's going to be your job description. You're going to be in a workplace where you can reach out and touch five or six people at any given time. You'd say, I don't want to work in that situation. That's the work situation for kids in school for six hours a day. It's a very close setting. And sometimes they're not motivated just because they need air and rest. They just need to let their yayas out and go to recess. And this makes me crazy. you got an attention deficit disorder kid. Recess is 10.30. He's sitting there. He needs air. He needs rest. He needs to get away from work. He needs to run around. And he needs it so badly that at 10.25, he pushes the kid next to him. And what does the teacher do? (laughs) Takes away recess takes away the solution to the problem. I have actually had written in IEPs you cannot take away this kid's recess as a punishment. You cannot take away you are violating the federal law if you take away this kid's recess. You can torture his puppy, you can put bamboo shoots (laughs) under his fingernails, but you cannot take away recess from this kid. Recess is not a privilege, it's a right. Because six, nine, ten year old kids cannot sit for six hours in class without getting up and getting a little air and rest. Sometimes they just need air and rest and they're not motivated because they're not getting that. Again, their physical needs being met. Elimination of waste. The bottom line is, if you gotta go, you gotta go. In preparation for this, I got on some teacher websites. (laughs) I love teacher websites. that deal with the bathroom crisis. Now, (laughs) child pornography, there's a crisis. (laughs) lack of funding for schools, there's a crisis. I'm not sure a kid asking to go to the bathroom is really a crisis, but teachers take this so seriously and get on the websites and you look at some of the, frankly, draconian strategies teachers use. One of them said, if more than two kids ask to use the bathroom in my fifth grade, if more than two kids ask to use the bathroom in one day, the whole class doesn't get recessed the next day. One of them said, if a kid needs to use the bathroom during the day, he has to stand up against the wall at recess or have a silent lunch. It's his choice let my people go! <laughs> the reality is they're not going to be motivated anyway and you know, this is the thing, we say things to them we say things to them like, you know, uh, why didn't you go at recess? because they didn't have to go at recess the 9 year old system is very different than the 35 year old system it's not as predictable by the way, when you get in your 50's it kind of reverts bad. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, but the bottom line is he didn't have to go at recess and you know what? Let's take a look at the reality of some of these kids. You know what I would love to see someday? I would love to see some middle school teacher say to a kid, a kid with a learning problem, a special needs kid, who goes up to her and says, can I please use the bathroom? And the teacher says, why didn't you use it at lunch? Why didn't you use it at lunch? We all use it at lunch. Why didn't you use it at lunch? I would love someday to see a kid open his reality door to that teacher and say, you want to know why I don't use it at lunch? because you people don't protect us in there. It's a no man's land in there. And the last time I went in to use the bathroom during lunch, the kids called me sped and pushed me in the urinal and flushed it, and I had to go home and change my clothes. They beat me up, they embarrass me, they humiliate me. The last place you're going to find me as a kid with special needs is in the bathroom during lunch. Now can I go use the bathroom? Come on, step into their reality for a minute. The last place you're going to find many of our kids is in the, in the boys' room during recess. They're just not going to go there, that the no man's landed there. So sometimes it's just elimination of waste. And then another primary need that's sometimes not met with kids is escape from pain. Sometimes the child's primary motivation is escape from pain. That little boy I talked about who broke his glasses every Thursday, his primal motivation, his primary motivation was to escape the, escape the pain of being embarrassed in front of his peers. And this is particularly important to understand with adolescents and pre adolescents. How many of us are raising adolescents? How many of us are raising more than one adolescent at a time? Yeah. The other ones are saying, Rick, we can stay here all day. We don't. There's really there's no need to get home. Let me give you a little free advice on raising adolescents, by the way. You'll be much more effective if you buy into this concept. You cannot win. You cannot win. Once you realize you can't win, you stop all these power struggles. Example. You're a mom you're with your 14-year-old daughter, you're walking through the mall with your 14-year-old daughter, and you run into a group of your daughter's friends, okay? There are two mistakes you can make at this juncture, Mom. Two mistakes you can make. One is to ignore her friends, to not talk to her friends, big mistake. The other mistake is to talk to her friends. <laughs> big mistake. And as soon as you... No, no matter what you do, you're wrong. Mother, you said hello. I'll have to change school districts. If we don't say hello. <laughs> but you know, one of my heroes in the field is a gentleman named Mel Levine. and—and. And Levine just knocks me out with his absolutely profound, his profound statement sometimes. And I read a book about 15 years ago of his, and in the introduction to the book, he said something that actually changed my career and changed my life. He defined adolescence. He defined adolescence in one sentence, in one sentence. He said, adolescence is simply this. Adolescence is a 24-hour a day, -day seven-day-a-week, 365-day-a-year battle to not be embarrassed. That's it. The adolescent prayer is, Dear God, don't let me be humiliated today. Their greatest fear is the fear of being embarrassed in front of others. And so many times, a kid will not be motivated or not do what you want him to do because he's just trying to escape the pain of embarrassment. And the most important thing to understand about all kids, but particularly adolescents, and particularly adolescents who struggle, if there's one thing you remember from today, let it be this at any given moment any kid would prefer to be viewed as a bad kid than a dumb kid at any moment any kid would prefer to be viewed as bad than dumb and if you put a kid in a position of choosing between looking bad and dumb I'm here to tell you that ninety percent of the time he will choose to look bad but you need to keep that right in the front of your brain right here so you're the basketball coach it's the end of basketball practice all your team is sitting up in the bleachers and you look at your watch and say gee we got ten more minutes we got ten more minutes Kevin Michael come on down from the stands I want you to demonstrate that passing drill we learned yesterday come on down I want you to demonstrate that drill and as Kevin comes off the stands he slaps some other kid in the back of the head you need to automatically think why did he do that why did he hit the other kid because he couldn't do the drill he couldn't do the drill and he's coming off the stands thinking I don't remember that drill I don't remember if you go to your left or your right I'm going to look dumb in front of the coach. I'm going to look dumb in front of the other kids. But if I whack this kid, the coach will throw me out of practice. And the coach will think I'm bad, and the kids will think I'm bad, but nobody will think I'm dumb. And I'd rather have everybody think I'm a bad kid than a dumb kid. So that kid that acts bad in your class sometimes, maybe that's because, to his perception, he's been put in a position of choosing between looking bad or looking dumb. So those primary needs that we talk about, those primary needs are fundamental. These need to be met first. Once you're convinced that those are met, then we take a look at what we call the secondary needs. What are the secondary needs, the psychological needs that people have? This is where it gets tricky, but it's also where it gets important. These are the things that motivate the human being. The important thing is that your personality, your individual personality, is dictated by the degree to which you're motivated by these things. Okay. Again, I'll say it, your individual personality is based on the degree to which you're motivated by each of these. So what I'm going to do is run through this list, and I'm going to give you my individual profile in terms of how motivated I am by each of these needs. But I want you to also think how you're motivated by each of those needs. Okay? Do we know what we're going to do? All right. Let's begin with status. Status is the need to feel important and valued. The best way to understand status is this. Status is a degree to which your self-concept is dictated by what other people think of you. Okay? If you're a high status person, your self-concept is very plugged into the opinions of others. If you're a more low status, it doesn't other people's opinions don't aren't that critical to you. Okay? My score on that would be very low. Um, certainly I care what other people think, but I dress the way I dress if you don't like it that's okay. Um, I drive what I drive. If you don't like it, that's okay. Every time I speak, when I get done speaking, I come off the stage, I give myself an A, a B, or a C. Never go any lower than C. I feel too, 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 too strongly about self-concept. But, but I give myself an A, a B, or a C. Now, if I come off the stage and I think, Rick, you got a C today. You, you were tired, you missed some things, you didn't connect with the audience. And I come off the stage and somebody comes up and says, Rick, I've heard you speak a hundred times. This is the best presentation I've ever heard. Well, I'd say thank you very much, but it wouldn't change my opinion. I wasn't happy with it. Conversely, if I think it went well, and I came off and I say that went well, I give you an A. And someone comes up and says this was a waste of my time. I didn't like the lecture. I'm not going to jump off a bridge. You know. And basically, I care about other people's opinions, but it's not going to necessarily dictate the way I run my life. Okay. Raise your hand if you'd say you're a very and again, please, there are no right or wrong answers here. If you're a high-status person, the opinions of others mean a great deal to you, raise your hands. Nothing, come on, raise your hands. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. Raise your hand if you're a very low-status person, raise your hand if you're somewhere in the middle. Okay, again, no right or wrong answers. Inquisitiveness, the need to know. I consider myself an inquisitive person. I'm flipping through the channels, I see a thing on Galapagos Turtles, I'll watch it, you know, I don't know anything about that, I'll watch that. But I give myself a kind of a middle grade there because there's a lot of things. I don't know a foreign language. I'm not necessarily inquisitive about that. I'm very non technical. Um, I just learned how to use a flashlight. You know, it's a, I'm I'm not, and I don't particularly care about learning a whole lot about using computers. So I give myself like a middle grade in inquisitiveness. Raise your hand if you give yourself a very high grade on inquisitiveness. How about very low? Somewhere in the middle. Okay, again, different strokes for different folks. Um, Affiliation. Affiliation, gigantic for me, huge for me. Affiliation means the need to be connected with something larger than you. Every ball cap I own, every jacket I own is a Red Sox ball cap or a Celtics jacket. I mean, I love walking through an airport in Chicago and having people say, he's from Boston. I mean, I, I, I love being affiliated with something larger than me. When, when I ran a school, they'd buy new sweatshirts with the school's name on. I'd order six of them for me, you know. I, I love being affiliated with something larger than me. And interestingly, when I was a kid, I loved that. They didn't used to make logo clothes then. And I used to have my mother, you know, stitch red socks uh, with a number, t- team number in the back of my jersey. The, the interesting thing is you're motivated today by the same things you're motivated by as a kid. Raise your hand if you're a high affiliation person. Raise your hand if you're low affiliation and somewhere in the middle. Okay, um, Affiliation, very high for me. Power, that's the need to be in control. I'd say very low for me. Um, I ran schools where I had a couple hundred people working for me. I gave that up to go out and work for myself. So obviously power isn't a big deal to me. In fact, the one thing I didn't like about my job was the power that I had. I could fire you and hire you and pay you more money. And, and I didn't like having that power over other people's lives. So power for me is very low. Raise your hand if power for you is very high. Raise your hand if your husband or wife would say it was very high. Raise your hand if it's in the middle someplace and very low. Okay. Um, different power needs. Achievement. Achievement is the need to be recognized. Um, for me, that's very low. I'll speak and people will give me a plaque or an award or something, and I greatly appreciate it. But I'll take it home and put it in a closet someplace. I don't have the need to, you know, put the trophies around the room. And yet you'll see them, in, they'll, they'll interview baseball players on ESPN, and they're sitting in their den with every trophy they've ever gotten since, they were in junior High School. It doesn't make them bad people. I mean, I've got a couple of honorary doctorates. I could refer to myself as Dr. Lavoie, and, you know, I don't. I'm not going to call a restaurant and make a reservation for Dr. Lavoie. Um, so achievement isn't a real big deal to me, okay? Raising your hand if achievement is very important to you. Nothing wrong with that at all. Your diploma's hanging up in your office, nothing wrong with that at all. Raise your hand if it's low for you and in the middle someplace. okay. Aggression. The need to assert, very, very low for me. I'm a very non-aggressive person, to a fault. I was raised, frankly, in a home with a lot of tension and a lot of conflict and I don't like fighting with people. I just don't. I've been in the road for 30 years. I have never sent a meal back. I've never sent a glass of wine back and that's not gonna kill me, what the heck, you know. (laughs) I just, you know, I just, I, I just don't like fighting with folks, okay? And again, to a fault. I look back at my life and I realize probably the biggest mistakes I've made in my life were times that I wasn't assertive enough. I wasn't aggressive enough. So, uh, uh, aggression, the need to assert, very, very low for me. Raise your hand if it's very high for you. Yeah, again, nothing wrong with it. In the middle someplace. And very low, okay? Gregariousness. Gregariousness is the need to be with others. The need to spend time with others, the need to, to I- interact with other people. Um, for me, that's very, very low. Very low need for me. I'm one of these fortunate people. I'm blessed. I married my best friend. We've been together now for 35 years. She meets all of my needs. I don't have any need to go away for weekends or join a bowling club. We just enjoy each other's company. We've actually worked in the same office together for, for over 35 years now. We're just not very gregarious people. I mean, I like meeting people, but our needs are met by each other. Now, we live on Cape Cod in this great old 1810 farmhouse that they turned into condominiums. And our condos on the first floor, the folks on the second floor are very gregarious people. They have dinner parties all the time. There's always people, and I'm sure they look in our our window and see the two of us sitting there by the fireplace reading and say, oh, the pool avoids. We're fine, we're fine. I'm just not a very gregarious person. Raise your hand if you're a very gregarious person, okay? Raise your hand if you're not. Raise your hand somewhere in the middle, okay? Autonomy. Autonomy for me, gigantic. Put me in a room alone, I'll change the world. Don't put me on a committee. Put me in a room alone, give me a problem, and I will solve it for you. When I left the school on Cape Cod that I ran for 12 years, I wrote a letter to the board, and I said, thank you for letting me run this school. Thank you for giving me the autonomy to run this school. I love working by myself on projects. Raise your hand if autonomy is very important to you. Yeah, most teachers it is. Most teachers it is. How about somewhere in the middle? How about not not important at all? Okay. Um, So autonomy, different needs. Um, Basically these are the needs that motivate the human animal. Status, inquisitiveness, affiliation, power, achievement, aggression, gregariousness, and autonomy. And all of us are motivated to some degree by these needs, but your individual personality is dictated by the degree to which you're motivated by each of these drives. Okay, now you did your own profile, raise your hand if your profile was identical to mine not a hand not a single hand I've done this with audience with a thousand people not a single hand went up because your profile is different from mine mine is different from Sterling's Sterling's is different from Asia's and Asia's different from his and his is different from hers we probably have with the group of this people in this room we probably have ninety or a hundred different profiles And yet, when we stand in front of a group of kids in school, we assume that they're all going to be motivated by the same thing. There's no reason to think that every kid in your class is going to be motivated by the same thing. And here's the mistake we make. We try to motivate the kids by using what motivates us. So like I said, when I was a teacher, I'm very motivated by affiliation. I love affiliation. So, when I was a teacher, the first thing I would do is get t shirts printed up that Mr. Lavoie's class, and I'd pass them out to all the kids, and I'd order seven of them from me. And I was always surprised and disappointed. Some of the kids wore the shirt until it fell off their back. Other kids never wore them again. Why would a power kid, why would a kid motivated by power, want a t shirt with somebody else's name on it? Why would a kid motivated by inquisitiveness care about having a t shirt with the name of the class on it? Now, the affiliation kid. And the gregarious kid, oh yeah, he'd love to have that. He'd love to have that. So what I was doing is trying to motivate kids by using what motivates me. So Sterling is a student in my class. Sterling is very motivated by gregariousness. He loves working with other folks, with other kids. I'm a teacher. I'm motivated by autonomy. I love working by myself. Now Sterling's done a great job for me, and I think I'd really like to give something to reward Sterling. I'd like to give him something to motivate him. What would be good? Woo! what I'd love is to go down to the media center by myself and work on a project. Okay, guess what, Sterling? I'm gonna let you go to the media center all by yourself and work on a project. And he's looking at me and thinking, what would I wanna do that for? What did I do wrong? Send me down there with my posse, then we'll talk. That'd be a good time. But why would I wanna go down there by myself? You see what we do? We try to motivate kids by using what motivates us. There's no reason to think that what motivates you is gonna motivate all your kids. Because you see kids are going to be motivated by different things. There are basically six ways to motivate kids. You can motivate kids by giving them praise, by giving them prizes, by giving them prestige, by giving them projects to do independently, by having them work with other people, or giving them power. Those are basically the six ways to motivate kids, but kids are going to be motivated by different things. A power kid is not going to be motivated by the same thing a prize kid is motivated by. And and a kid who's motivated by gregariousness is going to be motivated by working with other people. He doesn't care about prizes. And the kid motivated by affiliation is going to be motivated by prestige. He's not going to be motivated by power. So what we need to do is realize that just like we, we finally have realized in education that if you've got 30 kids in your class, you've got to use five or six different methods to teach them how to read and five or six different methods to teach them how to write and teach them math. What we also have to realize is, guess what? The rewards chart isn't going to work for every kid. Not every kid is going to be motivated by the same thing. These are the things that motivate kids, but it's going to work to different degrees with different kids. But here's the thing I find fascinating as we work with parents and teachers. If I tell you that a kid is motiva- motivated by affiliation, you, ha- you make t-shirts for him. If I tell you he's motivated by autonomy, you have him work alone. If I say he's motivated by gregariousness, you have not worked with other kids. And I tell you what the kid needs, and you give him more of that. But as soon as I tell you a kid is motivated by power, not only don't we give him the power we give to other kids, we give him less. Because we're terrified of kids who are motivated by power. We are terrified of kids whose primary motivation is power. And there are some kids, many kids in your classroom, who are screaming out for some power. You see, kids in our society don't have any power. We like to think they do, but they really don't. They can't choose where they live. They can't choose who they live with. They can't choose where they go to school. They can't even choose their own names. Why do you think middle school kids come up with coming up with nicknames for each other? Because it gives them some power. Kids have no power in our society, and so they come to school and they try to get some power from us. And we're standing in the door saying, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. You're not going to get any power from me. And the reason we won't give kids any power is because most of us as adults don't understand power. We don't understand the dynamics of power. And let me tell you what I mean. Most of us in the classroom and parents at home view power this way, that power is one great big amorphic ball. There's this big ball of power in the classroom. And I'm the teacher, and I need every bit of it and if a kid takes even a scrap of power that in some way diminishes my power and so as soon as Asia tries to take some power from my ball of power I'm gonna fight her on it because I need every bit of power to control the classroom. Folks that's not the way power works let me give you an analogy for the way power really works this is how power really works suppose Sterling has a candle that's not lit and I have a candle that's lit and I take my candle and I touch the end of my candle to his and then I take mine away. Does Sterling now have light? Does he have heat? Does he have flame? Did mine go out? No. Just like I can light his candle without diminishing my flame at all, you can give kids power without diminishing any of your own power. It isn't a win-lose situation. You can surrender power to kids without in any way diminishing your power. And almost everything I know about working with kids with power, I learned from a young girl named Carol. Carol was a student in my class, my first year teaching, and I have never in my life met a kid who needed more power than this kid. She was 13 years old. She frankly came from a very troubled family, so she had no control over what was going on at home. She'd come home, she never knew what was going to be there when she, or who was going to be there when she got home. She came, frankly, again, from a very dangerous neighborhood. She had no control over community life. She had tremendous learning problems, so she had no control over her school life. She had no control over her social life. And at 13 years old, she developed an adolescent onset seizure disorder and started having four or five uncontrolled seizures a day. Now she couldn't control her own body. She couldn't control her home life, her school life, her community life, her social life, and now she couldn't even control her own body. And this kid was desperate for some control. And where was she going to get it? From me. I was the new teacher, and she was going to get it from me. And every day it was a battle royal. Because she'd come into class and when I'd have my dukes up. Come on, babe, I'm ready for you. I'm not surrendering any of my power. And it would just be banging heads. And The kids called us the old married couple. All we did... <laughs> All we did was fight, fight, fight every day. And finally, I couldn't stand it anymore after a month and a half of this that was miserable for me, miserable for her. I finally had the wisdom to sit down with my mentor. And he gave me a great piece of advice that I pass on to you. He said, Rick, you need not attend every battle to which you're invited. In other words, pal, pick your fights, pick your fights. If you go to the mat with this kid on every issue, you're gonna spend the entire year on the mat with this kid. Pick your fights and come up with strategies that give Carol power without diminishing any of your own. So I started developing strategies that would give her power without diminishing my power. And Let me share some of those with you. One of the most important things to do with a power kid is to give him or her some degree of ownership. And the very, very best, the very best week I ever had with Carol, I'll never forget it. I had her in a geography class. And it was Friday, the end of the week. All the students are leaving class. And I stopped her, and I said, hold on a second, Carol. Well, yeah, I got, I got, got a question for you. She said, what is it, Mr. Lavoie? I said, um, Carol, um, I'm, we're going to be doing a unit on Hawaii next week. We're going to study Hawaii next week. And I need to do the research on it over the weekend. What would you like to learn about Hawaii? What could I look up for you? She said, uh, well, um, I've seen a lot of movies of Hawaii and they all have cars there, but they don't make cars there. How do they get the cars there? Oh, good. Anything else? Yeah, they do those dances where they tell a story by the way they move. That'd be kind of neat to learn that. Ooh, good. Anything else? Yeah, they eat that stuff out of a coconut that's got a funny name and they eat. it looks like yogurt. They eat it with their fingers. Um, what's that all about? I'd like to learn. Okay, good. That's good. Hey, this is pretty tough stuff, uh, Carol, but I'll look it up over the weekend. I'll see you on Monday. I worked for her that weekend. She was my boss. That was like like a hypodermic needle full of power. I worked for her that weekend, and I came back into school on Monday, and very uncharacteristically, Carol was sitting there waiting for me when I walked into class. She was early for class, and I walked in. She said, did you get your homework done over the weekend, Mr. LaVoy? Did you do your homework? And I said, yeah, I did. It wasn't easy, but I did. She said, I told my mother I gave you homework over the weekend. She thought that was pretty funny. And when the kids came in, I said, hey, kids, we're going to talk about Hawaii today. And I'll tell you, Carol gave me some tough assignments, but I think, I think I got them all. In fact, Carol, why don't you come sit up front? You can help me out this week. She was eating out of my hand all week. Why? Because it gave her some power. didn't diminish mine in any way. I had to do the preparation anyway. It in no way diminished my power. I just gave her some. I just gave her some power. So one of the things you can do is to give this kid this idea of, of ownership. The next thing for the kid who needs power is what's called minor choice technique. This is for argumentative kids. Do you have any argumentative kids in your classes? <laughs> well, in case any move to your neighborhood, you should know how to, how to deal with them. And these argumentative kids, again, their only way of getting power is in some way to, com- to get involved with power struggles with you. But the important thing to remember about power struggles is this, folks. The kid doesn't want any of your power. He just wants some of his own. So you can extinguish power struggles by giving the kid some power without surrendering any power of your own. And one of the techniques is called minor choice technique. Now, Carol that I talked about earlier was an argumentative kid. She could literally start a fight in an empty room. I mean, she was one of these kids, we've all had one, where you want to begin the class and say, Carol, could you close that door back there? Why should I close the door? I wasn't the last one in. You never make Billy do anything. you know. Everything is an argument. So let's suppose that Asia is my argumentative kid. And I know that I'm, I want her to write a 200-word composition about her dog. And I know it's going, to be, it's going to be a Donnyburg. She's going to argue. I don't want to write about my dog. I'd rather write about my cat. I don't want to write uh, a 200 words I feel like writing. Why can't I write 400 words? I know it's going to be a dogfight. So I extinguish it and head it off by minor choice technique. You'll be amazed how effective this is. Asia, I'd like you to write a 200-word composition for me about your dog. Do you want to use white paper or blue paper? Blue paper. Okay, fine. What do I care what color paper she uses? doesn't matter to me what color paper she uses, but by giving her that minor choice, it gives her the sense she's got some power. Again, remember, she doesn't want any of my power. She just wants some of her own. Asia, you made a mess of the art room, and I want you to clean it up. Would you like to do it before lunch or after lunch? After lunch, okay. Asia, it's time to feed the dog. You want to give her wet dog food or dry dog food? In other words, we're not going to argue about feeding the dog. We're not going to argue about cleaning up the art area. We're not going to argue about writing the composition. Here's the point of discussion. What color would you like to use? When would you like to do it? And what would you like to feed the dog? You'd be amazed how this idea of minor choice gives her the sense that she's got some power. You don't have all the power. You're giving him some power. But my agenda is still met. My agenda is a 200-word composition. My agenda is cleaning the art area. And my agenda is feeding the dog. My agenda is met. But by giving her a minor choice, I've given her some power. You'll be amazed how effectively this works. Minor choice technique. Another technique you can use for kids who need power is what's called getting a commitment. Getting a commitment is a uh, very effective technique to use, particularly with boys, interestingly enough, between the ages of 11 and 17. See if anybody can get this for me. What is there that little kids do, first and second grade kids do, until you can't stand it, makes you crazy, and you have to torture sixth grade kids to do the same thing. Anybody? Somebody said it. The tattling, exactly, tattling. right? You're a first grade teacher, you've been sick for a week with the flu, you stagger in after a week and the kids are standing in line. Guess what Johnny did while you were out? <laughs> I don't care what Johnny did while I was out. But, and yet sixth grade kids, you've got to torture them to get them to tattle on each other. That's because around fourth or fifth grade kids begin to develop the idea of, um, uh, that their word is their bond that what they say they ought to do. Use that with kids, particularly power kids, in terms of getting a commitment. And here's how it goes. Suppose Sterling is a student in my class, fifth grade, and the principal reports to me that after class every day, he goes running down the hallway knocking everybody over. You've got to deal with that, Rick. You've got to deal with that. Okay? here's how I deal with it. He starts leaving the class the next day. I stand in front of him. I say, hold on a second, Sterling. I've got a question for you. See you hear what I said? I didn't say I'm going to tell you something. I've got a question for you. And I say in a very positive, supportive way, just like this, I say, Sterling, are you going to walk down the hall or are you going to run? Are you going to walk or are you going to run? What's he going to say? He's going to say, I'm going to walk because he knows that's what I want to hear. But do you know the research into this indicates that the chances are 80% he will walk because he said he would? And the same research indicates that if I tell him to walk, it's only a 40% chance he'll walk you've doubled the chances of getting him to walk by getting him to commit to the behavior because again if if i tell him to walk and he walks who's got the power me if he says he's going to walk and he walks who's got the power him so getting a commitment and then suppose sterling does run down the hallway listen to what i can say now instead of the thing he's heard a million times which is sterling you didn't do what i told you to do now listen to what i can say sterling You didn't do what you said you were going to do. Gee, when one guy tells another guy he's going to do something, he really ought to do it. When I told you I'd bring in those slides of the Washington Zoo to show you, I brought them in because, gee, when one guy tells another guy he's going to do something, he really ought to do it. You hear how different that is? Instead of you didn't do what I told you to do, gee, Sterling, you didn't do what you said you were going to do. Now, by virtue of the fact I gave you that technique, it means I like you guys. Because if I don't like an audience, I don't give that technique. And I'll tell you why. That last thing I said to Sterling, you didn't do what you said you were going to do, is as close as I ever come, ever, to expressing to a kid what I think is the most damaging human emotion one human being can express to another. I think the most hurtful human emotion one human being can express to another, it's not anger, it's not guilt, it's not even hate. What is it? Disappointment. Disappointment. I think disappointment is the most damaging human emotion you can use with another person. I want everyone in this room to do something right now. I want you to think about a person in your life whose opinion means the world to you, someone who's very important to you, someone who's a rudder in your life, someone who if they tell you it's right, you know it's right. If they tell you it's wrong, you know it's wrong. Someone whose opinion you really believe in. You're thinking of that person? Might be a mother, father, sister, brother, husband, wife, whatever, okay? And I'll think of my wife who plays that role in my life. Would you rather have that person angry at you or disappointed in you? How many say angry? Oh, yeah, we've been together for 40 years. There's plenty of times she's been angry at me. But disappointed, I, can't, I can count on one hand, and I can tell you the dates. Because disappointment says, Rick, I expected this, and you gave me this. You let me down. You weren't there. Oh, oh my God, what a what a, horrible, what a damaging thing to say to another person. You let me down. If at the end of the shoot, PBS, the folks from PBS come up to me and say, Rick, I'm, we're kind of angry about some of the things you said today. I said, well, fine, let's talk about it. But if they were to say, Rick, we're kind of disappointed in the job you did today, that would really blow me away. I'd get over it, but I mean it would blow me away. (laughs) The reality is disappointment is so much stronger than anger. My point is, folks, don't use it with kids. It's too powerful. It's too strong. It's too strong an emotion. They will disappoint you. They will embarrass you at Grandma's house. They will slip money out of your wallet. They will disappoint you. Tell them you're angry at them. Tell them you're surprised at what they did. Don't tell them you're disappointed. Don't tell me you're disappointed. It hurts too much. It simply hurts too much. Now, here's a test to see if you truly understand power. Here's our final exam Do you really understand power? You're a teacher, and it's the end of the class day, and Michael is leaving the classroom with his book tucked under his arm. And you say, Michael, that book can't leave the classroom. Yeah, but I need it for my homework. It's a resource book, Michael. Everybody needs it, it needs to stay in the classroom. It's mine. Please put it on the table and go to class. But I really need it. Michael, put the book on the table and go to class. But I really need Michael, put the book on the table and go to class. And Michael goes like this and walks out of class. Here's the final exam Do you call him back? Do you call him back and make him pick up that book and put it down properly three or four times? Do you call him back? Here's my answer to that question. If you call him back, and it gets crazy and it gets nuts it's on your head he did what you told him to he put the book on the table and left if you feel the need to call him back and humiliate him by making him pick up that book up and down three or four times and it gets nuts and it becomes a Donnybrook. brook it's on your head you started that fire he was leaving the classroom and here's the second thing very candidly folks if you feel the need to bring this eleven-year-old kid back and make him pick that book up and put it down three or four times How much power do you need in your life? He's an 11-year-old kid who made a mistake. He probably regretted slamming the book before he got to the door. If you feel the need to make him come back and pick up that book three or four times, you need to look in the mirror and say, How much power do I need that I felt the need to do that to that kid? Now, I'd catch up with him later in the day. I'd catch up later in the day and say, You know, Michael, slamming that book on the table, I would never do that to you. I would never treat you that way and I would hope you would never do it again, but if you feel the need to make him come back and pick up that book and put it down, as many teachers would, how much power and control do you need? How many of your power needs are being met by the fact that you're the tallest person in the room? We need to examine ourselves, a little self-awareness here. We've been talking about the myths and misconceptions. There are so many things we don't understand about motivation with kids, and what we need to understand is the most important thing about motivating kids is this word here, success. Many of our kids suffer from what's called chronic success deprivation. They've never had any success. They don't even know what success feels like. They have absolutely no idea what it's like to be successful. And we tell them if they work harder they can enjoy some success. If they could advocate for themselves they'd say no, we need to have some success before we can work toward it. We don't even know what you're talking about when you say success. And so many times as teachers and parents we say this, if we'd only try harder we'd do better. If he'd only try harder, he'd do better. The reason this bothers me is it's not only wrong, it's 180 degrees wrong. 180 degrees wrong. Because the truth is not if he would only try harder, he'd do better. The truth actually is if he only did better, he'd try harder. If you gave him some success once in a while, if you gave him a taste of success once in a while, then he's going to work toward it. I say to moms and dads, if the only thing, you've got a 12-year-old kid with a learning problem, and the only thing he knows how to do is use a Phillips head screwdriver, every Thursday before he gets off the school bus, ma, you go around the house and loosen every bloody screw in the house. And as soon as he comes in, give him the screwdriver and say, go to a pal, because nobody does it like you. You need to actually invent opportunities for these kids to be successful. We tell them if they work harder, they'll enjoy some success. If they can advocate for themselves, they'd say, I can't work harder until I've enjoyed some success. It's not a matter of if he'd only try harder, he'd do better. It truly is a matter of if he only did better, he would try harder. Thank you very much, folks. Thank you. I tell my students now that when I was in grammar school, a good day for me was a day I never got called on. I was in a setting in which I felt really uncomfortable and I was afraid to ask questions and I was afraid to be curious. Uh, they would make us uh, stand at attention, we weren't allowed to go to bathroom except at certain times. And I tell my students I think that's a huge mistake i think the teacher made a gigantic mistake if i had to do it all over again i would deal with the power issues so much differently i'm sitting there thinking about my first two weeks of school like the kids don't have much choice if he needs to move and he needs the air and he needs the rest then i need to give it to him my child is a teenager and so probably old enough to have a conversation about this list and i'd like to get him to self-assess and tell me You know, what do you think motivates you? We're sitting there saying, You gotta do this, you gotta do that, you gotta do that. And then we're wondering why they're acting up. It's kinda like, well, well, of course. I hope this program has been useful for you as you attempt to use motivational strategies at home, at school, and in the community. My interest in study of motivation began when I was working with my nephew Daniel. Daniel's motivation in school might best be described as whimsical. He's learned the bitter lesson of learning disorders. The amount of effort that he invests in a task rarely translates to the amount of success that he has in accomplishing the task. Basically, what he puts into it has little to do with what he gets out of it. His repeated failure at school has all but eliminated his intrinsic motivation and his drive to succeed. But young Daniel has other parts of his life beside the classroom. He can troubleshoot a computer expertly, and his knowledge of popular music and politics is unsurpassed. And he loves airplanes. Two years ago, Daniel was searching for a summer job. His dad suggested that he apply at a small light plane airport that was a mile or so from their home. Daniel was told they had no paid positions available, but the airstrips owner instantly liked Daniel and offered to have him do some basic yard work and painting on the property in exchange for flying lessons. All of the adults in Daniel's life, including me, were skeptical, but our doubts paled in comparison to Daniel's enthusiasm and delight at the prospect of flying. As of today, Daniel's had a relationship with the airstrip staff for two years. He's painted several buildings, mowed and remowed countless runways, and flew an airplane solo two weeks before his 16th birthday. Now many parents and educational professionals might ask, why won't Daniel invest the same consistent effort in class that he seems willing to invest in flying? I believe that this question misses the point. I pose a very different question. What is the flight instructor doing with Daniel that lights his motivational spark that his classroom teachers are not doing? If you would ask Daniel that question, he'd respond that the airstrip gives him approval, praise, and success, a constant balance of challenge and support. The joy he finds in an airplane is diametric to his frustration in the classroom. As teachers and parents, let us commit to learning why unmotivated kids are able to find their drive and inspiration on playing fields, on skateboard courses, in pool rooms, in video arcades, on mall courses, or at 9,000 feet. What do these settings provide that we don't provide in the classroom? We constantly search for ways that we can change the child. Perhaps the first significant change should come from us. Perhaps we should first analyze and change our policies, procedures, and practices when dealing with the hard-to-teach, hard-to-reach kid. It's been said that our society needs to use every person to his fullest potential. We simply do not have a single person to waste. Let's not waste our students by failing to search for, find, and use the key that will inspire and motivate them. When I was in school, I was called lazy, unmotivated, sometimes just plain stupid. Actually, I was none of those things, but I am dyslexic. I had trouble reading in all of my classes. Educators know a lot more now than they did then, but do you? For information and advice about learning disabilities, please visit LD Online. It is the best LD resource on the web.